Peace be with you. It's good to be with you this morning. You're a guest with us. My name is Garrison. I'm one of the pastors here at Veritas. We're so glad that you're with us. Um, well, we are in a sermon series. We just started last week in the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark. If you want to turn in your Bibles to Mark 1, we're going to be in Mark chapter 1, looking at verses 1 through 8, as we consider the introduction to Mark's Gospel and what he wants to highlight for us here. When you get there, you can stand and we will read and, and pray and ask for the Lord's blessing on our time. Let's listen with reverence and joy, because this is the word of our God. Mark writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a, baptiz a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. In all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I stand here as a man who is not worthy to even stoop down and untie the strap of your sandals. You are the glorious one. You are the excellent one. And so we want you to be proclaimed now and seen and savored now and glorified by believing hearts now. And so to that end, would the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray for the sake of your name. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, I've thoroughly enjoyed visiting the National Underground Railroad Freedom Center in Cincinnati on two occasions. Uh, it's a museum, obviously, in Cincinnati, it's trying to educate visitors on slavery in the United States, and um, as the name suggests, the Underground Railroad. It was very informative. You know, I, I learned things, it's, I, probably much of which I'd learned when I was younger, but had since forgotten and uh, one of the exhibits contained some information that for some reason or another stood out to me. And that's the kind of language that was used uh, in communication, the, this kind of language involved in the Underground Railroad that they use in their communication with one another. 
And of course, the, the name itself is, is highly symbolic. I mean, it's obviously, as you know, not a literal railroad. They would refer to it as the Underground Railroad and as the Freedom Train. And they would refer to those directly uh, transporting escaped slaves. They would refer to them as conductors. They would call the paths that they would take on their journeys tracks and, and just more like that. But part of what stood out so much to me about it was in, in the symbolic language, just the, the, the language they used in referring to aspects of the organization that they found from the scriptures, particularly the, the Old Testament narrative of, of the Exodus. For example, they would, uh, you know Harriet Tubman, they would refer to her as, as Moses, as she played such a central role in leading people out of the desert of slavery and into a life of freedom. Uh, they would refer to Canada, the nation, obviously just bordering the United States to the north. They would refer to that as Canaan land, the promised land, the land in which they would find freedom from slavery. They would refer to uh, the Ohio River as the River Jordan, since it was the, the, uh, the sort of landmark wherein escapees would cross from the southern states into the northern states, which were safer, just as the nation of Israel came out of exile and came out of the wilderness into Canaan land, into the promised land by crossing the River Jordan so long ago. It was fascinating to, to hear all of these stories and consider such things and to go through these exhibits and then to go out onto the balcony of the museum, which overlooks the Ohio River, and to just sit there and consider the, the amount of sojourners, how many sojourners crossed it in search of freedom from slavery and a life of flourishing. Well, I start with that this morning because just as those involved in such endeavors needed to know something of the Exodus narrative and the story of God's people to understand and communicate with one another, so we also need to know something of the Exodus narrative and the story of God's people to understand what Mark is saying here. You see, because the, the Exodus narrative in the Old Testament, with all of its glories and graces, was actually pointing toward a greater Exodus to come, a new exodus, an exodus not merely out of slavery to Egypt and into Canaan, but an exodus out of sin and guilt and into everlasting life. And Mark is telling us here in Mark 1, 1 through 8, that this greater new exodus is coming now in Christ Jesus. Jesus is bringing a new exodus for his people. That's part of what Mark wants us to see here. And so that's what we're going to explore as we look at a new exodus prophesied, portrayed, and proclaimed. First, we see a new exodus prophesied. If you want to look with me at verse 2, Mark writes, saying, as it is written in the prophet Isaiah. Now, right away, he wants us to see that this new exodus has been God's plan all along. He's been planning this new exodus. God has planned this salvation, and he spoke of it through his prophets of hold, including, and maybe most clearly, through the prophet Isaiah. Now, part of what's interesting here is that the scripture text that Mark quotes in verse 2 is not actually from the prophet Isaiah. Uh, the scripture text voted in verse, uh, quoted in verse 3 is from the prophet Isaiah, but not verse 2. Verse 2 comes from two Old Testament texts, 
the one that's usually associated with it is Malachi 3.1, which is speaking of God's coming judgment, God's coming to judge his people. And Malachi says that before God's arrival to judge his people, there will be a prophet who comes ahead to prepare the way. It says in Malachi 3.1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. You see, the Son of God, before his incarnation, spoke through the prophet Malachi to foretell the coming of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the prophet and messenger who came before Christ, and his job was to go ahead of Christ and to get Israel ready for his arrival. Now, part of what's interesting here is that Mark seems to be referencing this text as well as another text, particularly Exodus 23, 20. In fact, if you put Mark 1, 2 and Malachi 3, 1 and Exodus 23, 20 side by side in Greek, Mark 1, 2 and Exodus 23, 20 are actually more similar than Mark 1, 2 and Malachi 3, 1, even though Malachi 3, 1 is the one usually associated with this text. And it doesn't actually show this in the English language, uh, but it's more similar. Look at Exodus 23, 20. Behold, I send an angel. And part of what you need to understand is that the Hebrew words and Greek words for angel and messenger are the same word. Uh, it says, behold, I send an angel or a messenger before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the land that I've prepared. So you see here that the, the Lord is telling the nation of Israel in the Exodus narrative, in Exodus 23, 20, that he is sending an angel or a messenger to prepare the way for them so that they can escape slavery in Egypt and enter into the promised land with safety and security. And with Mark's quotation of this text, he's saying that John the Baptist is like that angelic messenger, only he's functioning as a forerunner to the arrival of God in the flesh who will take us into the promised land. Uh, Richard Hayes has this wonderful book, on the Gospels, he, he puts it this way. He says, by echoing Exodus 23, 20, Mark artfully hints that the Baptist, that's John, is not only a voice of judgment, as the Malachi illusion would suggest, but also the forerunner of a new entry into the land of promise. Another wonderful book gets to the same point, a book called Exodus Old and New by Michael Morales. He communicates the same point by saying that the second Exodus will dawn with the coming of the Elijah-like messenger, again, that's John the Baptist, who will prepare the way for Yahweh's visitation. You see, just as the morning star comes before the dawn, so Mark is saying here that the promised messenger, John the Baptist, is coming right before the dawn of the new Exodus in which God will set his people free. And I want you to see here that this fits with the context of the Isaiah quote in Mark 1-3, where Mark quotes Isaiah saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. This is from Isaiah 40 verse 3. And in, Isaiah's, in Isaiah chapters 40 through 66, the prophet Isaiah is prophesying about this new coming exodus for the people of God. You see, because all of those years ago, when the first exodus 
happened, God's people were set free from slavery in Egypt, and they were brought out of Egypt by God's mighty and outstretched arm, and they were brought into the wilderness and through it into Canaan land, but they continued there to face the same problem, a very serious problem, again and again and again, and this serious problem was that while they had been taken out of Egypt, Egypt had still not been taken out of them. You see, while they were freed from slavery and bondage to the kingdom of Egypt, they were still in bondage to sin in the kingdom of darkness. And we see this over and over again. While on their way to the promised land, Israel is continually rebelling against God, stubborn, grumbling against God, grumbling against the prophet Moses, at times actually saying, we want to go back to Egypt because Egypt had not been taken out of them yet, although they had been taken out of Egypt. And even after they cross over into the promised land, into Canaan, It doesn't take long for us to see their sinfulness and rebellion continue. In Judges, everyone does what is right in his own eyes. In 1 and 2 Kings, the nation and kings rebel against God. They worship idols. They They oppress one another with great injustices. And so then come the prophets to announce the word of judgment upon the nation of Israel, telling them, you're just like Egypt yourself. Because... You've been taken out of Egypt, but Egypt still lives within you. And we saw this in in the prophet Amos as we walked through Amos this last year, didn't we? His, His message was continual. Judgment is coming. Exile is coming. That was the message. All because the people of God still carried Egypt in their hearts. They were still enslaved to sin and Satan. And that's why Isaiah is coming with a word of new exodus in Isaiah 40 through 66. And that's why it's such good news. He comes to tell them God is going to visit Israel once again. And he's going to free them from their exile and slavery. And this time when he comes, it won't just be an exodus from earthly empires and governments. It will be an exodus that gets to the heart of the issue. It will be an exodus out of slavery to sin and guilt and into the promised land of everlasting life with God. This is what is promised in the coming of God in the flesh. This is what is promised in the arrival of the Christ. And this is what John the Baptist was sent to prepare the people for. Now you might, you might be wondering about Mark only mentioning Isaiah here, but then quoting Malachi 3.1 and Exodus 23.20. You know, some have wondered whether Mark made a mistake here. Uh, I think we can rest assured that he did not make a mistake. You see, he's clearly quoting these texts and then explicitly mentioning Isaiah here with a great theological intentionality. He's trying to show his readers that what is about to take place is the arrival of the king in his new exodus that Isaiah prophesied about just 700 years earlier. This is the gospel that Mark is writing about, and it's the same gospel that the prophet Isaiah prophesied about 700 years earlier. What's coming is nothing other than the new exodus from slavery to sin and guilt and the arrival of everlasting life in Christ. But then this new exodus is not only prophesied in the Old Testament with prophecies concerning John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus, but the new exodus is also portrayed in the ministry of John the Baptist with a particular act he was given to do. You see, part of what John the Baptist's ministry entailed was to baptize the people of Israel. So look at me at verses 4 and 5, the new exodus portrayed. 
John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So in his ministry to prepare the people of Israel for Christ's coming, John was sent to baptize. Hence his name, John the Baptist. He wasn't like a Baptist like we think of Baptist today. Not like us. Um, he was sent to baptize and he did this in the wilderness in Judea. And it says that all the people in the country of Judea and in the city of Jerusalem were going out to be baptized by him. And now this is significant because this was a, this was a new thing. Um, not, not that baptism was necessarily a new thing. You see, uh, whenever Gentiles were converted in the Old Testament to Israel or, or uh, whenever you know, priests would uh, be approaching the temple for certain uh, temple rituals, they would undergo a, a baptism in order to prepare for these things. There was a baptism of conversion for the Gentiles in, under the Old Covenant. But your everyday Israel, if you're your everyday Israelite, this was new. You see, your, your everyday Israelite would not have considered themselves to be like these Gentile sinners who need to undergo conversion and baptism, and yet here they are being baptized with a baptism of repentance and confession and conversion, proclaiming themselves to be sinners who need to be washed clean by the grace of God. And that's part of what baptism symbolizes. It symbolizes being cleansed from sin and guilt. It's, it's a proclamation of the one being baptized being a repentant follower of Yahweh. In other, in other words, it symbolizes the new exodus that Jesus is bringing. And in fact, this is not the only place that baptism is associated with the exodus. We find this in 1 Corinthians 10 too, when the apostle Paul says that in the Old Testament, the, the people of God were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. He's saying, he's saying all of Israel underwent baptism in the Old Testament. So when did that happen? That happened when God had brought his people out of the land of Egypt. He did so with this mighty and outstretched arm. He defeated Egypt and its Pharaoh with all of his glory and grace. And he brought Israel out without a scratch on their heads. And then Moses led them through the Red Sea. Moses brought them to the Red Sea. The Egyptian army is approaching behind them. They have no chance of, of defeating the Egyptian army in and of themselves. And so the Lord uses Moses to split the Red Sea, and they walk through the sea on foot. That's, and Paul looks at that, and he says, that's baptism. That's baptism. And, 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 and you can see here that Mark is saying something similar here. So consider, it's not a coincidence that John is baptizing in the River Jordan, the same river that Israel crossed to get into the promised land in Joshua 3. It's not a coincidence. He's, he's, just as Israel underwent baptism in the Red Sea to escape Egypt and, and, uh, and, and went through baptism in the Jordan River to enter the promised land in the Old Covenant, just as Israel went through baptism in the Old Covenant, so baptism 
uh, comes with the arrival of the new covenant, and it portrays the better exodus, a new exodus, an exodus from sin and guilt and into new life in Christ. You see, that's what John the Baptist is portraying here in his ministry of baptism. He's portraying this new exodus, the fresh redemption that Christ is accomplishing in, in himself, the forgiveness of sins and new life by the Holy Spirit. That's what he's portraying here. And still today, baptism portrays the same reality. When a person is baptized, it's portraying the fact that Christ has delivered this person from sin and guilt and given them new life in himself. It's been said before that um, a, a believer will preach at least two sermons in their lifetime, once at their baptism and then every time they receive the Lord's Supper. You see, because, because these realities, these practices, these sacraments, uh, uh, they, they, for, they portray and preach and proclaim the gospel in a particular way. You know, not all of us are called to preach like me or like John the Baptist here. Uh, not all of us are, are called to preach in this way, but we all proclaim the saving work of Jesus Christ to all who see baptism and the Lord's Supper as God's people participate in these realities. These realities depict the saving work of Jesus Christ that has taken place in the believer's life. And for this reason, if you are a Christian here this morning, if you're a Christian, if you're watching on the live stream, you're a Christian, you should be baptized if you have not been baptized. You should be baptized. And just to be clear, I don't mean sprinkling as an infant. That's not what I'm referring to here. Note here that baptism is a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. You see, that baptism is meant for those who have repented and confessed their sin, implying that that is a necessary prerequisite for baptism to be legitimate. A person needs to go through this new exodus in order to portray it in baptism. We might rightly say that baptism is the first step a person ought to take if they are repenting and beginning to follow Jesus. And this is an important point because I've talked with many professing Christians throughout my life and throughout my ministry as a pastor, I've talked with many Christians who treat baptism as a sort of optional, unimportant thing in Christianity. It's not. Baptism is a sacrament that the Lord Jesus gave us in association with our new exodus from sin and guilt and our entrance into the new covenant. And, and, and I know that, that many Christians in our uh, kind of uh, circles and tribes may have sought to replace baptism with, you know, things like walking down an aisle or praying a prayer or turning a chair around or, 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 or whatever. And there may be nothing particularly wrong with those things. I'm not saying there is. Yet those are not the things that Jesus gave us to mark the beginning of our exodus out of sin and guilt and into new life in Christ. Baptism is. And so to all believers, you ought to be baptized in order to show forth and portray what Christ has done in his saving work in your life. Along with that, for those of you who are Christians and have already been baptized, I would exhort you to remember your baptism. Remember your baptism. You know, so, so often I get to hear Christian stories, which is a great honor that I get to participate in. It's one of my favorite parts of being a pastor. I get to sit down with people and hear their stories and hear about how they came to faith in Christ. I love this, but so, so often I fear that we can tend to treat baptism 
as this thing that we did a long time ago that's not extremely relevant, that we just kind of had to get out of the way. You know, th- not worth remembering or mentioning in our stories, but that's not at all how baptism is treated in the New Testament. Is it baptism, again, is a sacrament of the Lord Jesus. He gave it as a physical, intangible thing by which we can mark the beginning of our spiritual exodus and new life in him. By God's grace, he has given us something we could touch and feel with our skin. He's given us a, a concrete event that would portray and testify to and mark what he has done spiritually within us. And so we would honor him by remembering it. You know, I, I, I would encourage you with that. To remember your baptism when you're under temptation. Right? If, if, if baptism portrays to us that we are no longer enslaved by sin, then it's worth remembering when we're tempted to sin, don't you think? It's when you're tempted to look at pornography or to engage in lustful thoughts. When you're tempted to slack off at work and thus steal from your employer. When you're tempted to to fly off the handle and yell at your kids for the annoying thing they've done for the 37th time that day or whatever it is, when you're under temptation, remember, grab yourself by the shirt and remember your baptism. Say, listen, you've been baptized. You're no longer enslaved to sin. You're no longer that person. That person has died and was buried, and you've been raised to new life in Christ. You've repented. You're a follower of Jesus. You no longer need to sin like that anymore. And draw strength from what your baptism represents. Let it give you strength to withstand in the face of temptation. And not just when you're under temptation, but when you're feeling condemnation as well. Now, baptism portrays freedom, not just from sin's power, but sin's guilt as well. It portrays that you've been washed clean by the grace of God and the cleansing blood of Jesus. It portrays that, that God has washed away your guilt by his glorious grace. And so when you fail and you give in to temptation and Satan speaks a word of condemnation to you, or when you remember past sins that you've already repented of and have been cleansed by the cleansing blood of Jesus. And that negative self-talk comes when Satan tempts you to despair and reminds you of the guilt within. Remember your baptism and what it portrays. One of my uh, favorite poems by one of my favorite poets is is, uh, Baptism by George Herbert. It begins by saying this. He says, as he that sees a dark and shady grove stays not but looks beyond it to the sky. So when I view my sins, mine eyes remove and more backward still into that water fly. See, in the same way, when you have view of your sins and they seem big and your Savior seems small, look to your baptism. Remember your baptism, not because baptism saves you or anything like that, but because of what it tangibly and visibly and sensibly portrays to you again namely that Christ has saved you he has freed you from sin and guilt he has given you new life in himself in order to 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 remember these things and be comforted by them we would do well to remember our baptism but then John the Baptist not only portrayed this new exodus in baptism he also proclaimed this new exodus with his mouth 
Look at me at verses 6 through 8 of the New Exodus Proclaimed. Mark writes, Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, boys and girls, verse 6 might seem slightly odd to you. He was clothed with, what did he wear? Camel hair, and he ate locusts. He ate grasshoppers and wild honey. That is a wild man right there. But you see, it, it, it is odd, but, but, but it's meant to communicate something about John the Baptist being a prophet and a preacher. His kinds of clothes were the same kind of clothes that the prophet Elijah was recorded as wearing in 2 Kings 1.8. And, and, and with that, John's appearance and his diet would have caught people's attention since it would have reminded them of the preacher Elijah in the Old Testament. They would have known this man has come to preach. He's, he's come with a message. He's got something to say. And so we ought to listen up. And now his message then is, is wonderfully simple and stunning. His message is the message of, of salvation in Jesus. He exalts Jesus by saying, I'm only preparing for the one who's much greater than I. His supremacy knows no end. He is the excellent one. The Christ and the Son of God is coming after me. And then he states what the Messiah will do. I've baptized you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the new exodus proclaimed. You see, because as we know, the people of Israel were freed from slavery in Egypt so long ago, but they were not freed from the Egypt within. Well, here John is saying that the Messiah is coming and he has come to free us from the Egypt within. And, 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 and he will do this by baptizing us, not merely with water, but by what the water portrays. Namely, he's going to baptize us with the Holy Spirit. Now, what is that? What does it mean to be baptized with the Holy Spirit? This is hearkening back to the Old Testament promises found in like Isaiah 32, 15, where Isaiah speaks of the arrival of the new Exodus not coming until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high. And then he speaks of it again in Isaiah 44, 3. And the Lord promises, I will pour my Spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. The prophet Ezekiel picks this up as well. The Lord speaking through him, a new spirit I will put within them. Joel 2.28 says, I will pour my spirit on all flesh. These texts are speaking to the promise of the new covenant, the promise of the new birth or regeneration as we looked at just a few weeks ago in our Unbreakable Chain of Salvation series. This is the moment in which the God of the universe, the Holy Spirit, comes to dwell in God's people, enabling and empowering God's people to trust God and love God and obey God and live for God, freeing us from the Egypt within that kept God's people from a fuller, more holistic obedience to him so long ago. This is part of what Jesus came to do. He came to give us the new birth. He came to regenerate us. He came to make us new. He came to make us free from sin and guilt. He came to fill us and baptize us with the Holy Spirit. And of course, we ought to remember 
what he, what it cost him to give us this wonderful gift. You see, because in his coming to baptize us with the Spirit, he had to undergo being baptized with his own blood in order to free us from sin and guilt he had to be condemned as a criminal in order for us to have new life he had to die in order for us to have the new exodus that we find promised in Isaiah 40 through 66 he had to take the judgment that we find in Malachi 3 and so just as baptism depicts he died and he was buried But as you know, as we just celebrated just a few weeks ago, that's not where the story ends. On the third day, the Lord Jesus had his own exodus from death in the grave, and he ushered in for us the new creation, the Canaan land, in his resurrection. And because of this, all who trust in him, who repent and confess their sins, he grants them new life and freedom, and he grants them the gift of being a part of his new creation project as people being new, a new creation themselves. And perhaps you're here this morning, and you've not received this gift, this new exodus. You, you don't know what it means to be free from sin and guilt. You don't know what it means to have the, the freedom of life in and with Jesus. You, you, you don't know what it means to be made new. But my friends, if you would only call out to him with a sincere heart, repenting, confessing your sins, asking him to free you from the Egypt within, this Savior will take away your sin and guilt, and he will set you free. Jesus will give you this new exodus. He will free you. No more guilt, no more shame, no more slavery to sin. And so for those of us who have been freed, those of us who have received the wonderful gift of God's salvation in Christ, we also have received a responsibility with this. You see, in Exodus 19, 5 and 6, the Lord told his people that he rescued and delivered them from slavery in Egypt so that they would be his people and he their God and so that they would be witnesses and representatives for him to the nations of the earth. He says that they are to be a kingdom of priests. What that means, in other words, they are to faithfully represent him as his people. But you know what's more? is that the apostle Peter actually picks up on this theme of God's people in the new covenant. The people have received the the, the gift of the new greater exodus. And he tells us, 1 Peter 2, 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that, listen, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. In other words, my friends, we have been rescued and redeemed and been given the gift of this new exodus in Christ so that we might proclaim his excellencies to the world. This is John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ as the supreme Christ and Lord of the universe and to pave the way for his first coming. We have been filled with the Holy Spirit to pave the way for Christ's second coming. We are to proclaim the excellencies of Christ to all the nations of the earth and to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and all in order to make way for the coming of Christ. 
as Jesus says in Matthew 24, 14. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Then he will return. And so we have our marching orders. We have our calling here. And so if I may be so bold as to exhort us and encourage us in this this morning, friends, are we living as faithful representatives of the Lord Jesus Christ to our families and our households, to our neighbors and our neighborhoods, to our co-workers and our employment? To that end, are, are you praying for particular people? Are there particular people that you are praying for, family members, friends, co-workers, neighbors? Are you praying for particular people to be saved and set free in Christ? Are you seeking to engage them with the gospel and to be a messenger for the Lord Jesus to those around you? Are you praying for opportunities to be a messenger for the Lord Jesus to those around you? Are you praying for opportunities to share the gospel of the Lord Jesus with your loved ones? Friends, we, we must be faithful to this calling. We must live as messengers and witnesses for the Lord Jesus, preparing the way for his return. He's not going to return until all of his elect have been saved and, and, and understand and trusting in the good news of Jesus Christ. Lottie Moon once wrote, How many are there who imagine that because Jesus paid it all, they need pay nothing, forgetting that the prime object of their salvation was that they should follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ in bringing back a lost world to God. This is why we have been given this new exodus, and this is why we have been set free from slavery to sin and guilt. And, and, and not just in our ordinary, everyday lives. There's a whole world of peoples and nations and tribes who have yet to hear or believe the gospel. There are entire people groups unreached by the gospel. And so if you'll remember with me in our sermon series just several months ago when we were in Psalm 67, we discussed three to five individuals or households being sent from this church to the nations to take the gospel there. And I hope that some of you have been praying and considering this and talking about it with others. If not, I would exhort you to do it. Why not you? Why not you? But even, even if you don't leave American soil for the sake of the, of, of the gospel and, and missions endeavors, there are still very real opportunities here in our city to engage with unreached people groups in our city. Right now, our missions team has been meeting to discuss how we might better engage the nations both globally and locally. And there are real opportunities to get involved with these efforts here in our city through ministries like IFI and, and uh, No Longer Strangers. If you're interested in getting involved, please let us know. We're meant to live as representatives of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who we are called to proclaim his excellencies to a world in need of him. We have been commissioned as his messenger to prepare the way for his return when he will complete this new exodus and bring us into the land of promise forevermore. He's inaugurated this new exodus in his first coming, in his own baptism in blood, in his own burial and resurrection, in his own exodus from the grave. And he's given us personally this exodus by baptizing us 
in the Holy Spirit, freeing us from sin and guilt, making us a new creation in himself, and he will finish this new exodus when he returns to make all things new, making this whole earth like the land of promise in Canaan. But until then, we are called to be about his business. We are called to be continually portraying and proclaiming this new exodus in his name and for his glory. Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks for the gift of the new exodus in Christ Jesus. We thank you for the gift of baptism portraying to us what you have accomplished in Christ for us and by the Holy Spirit. We thank you for foretelling this new exodus so long ago so that we could have it confirmed in our hearts that this has been your plan all along. And we thank you for the proclamation of it from your word so that we would hear the Lord Jesus Christ and be set free by his powerful voice. I pray that that would take place for your people this morning. Save us and sanctify us by Christ, by your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.